And welcome back to the Word Encounter, episode 86. Yesterday we concluded with the book of Nehemiah, and today we're going to start in the book of Esther. Like I said yesterday, uh, Esther is one of my favorite books in the Bible. It is so rich with so much uh, uh, knowledge, wisdom, and whatnot on practical matters. And, and just, uh, you know, you can just read this and read it and read it. And it's not very long. It's only 10 chapters long. But the depth of knowledge that gets revealed through this book, to me, I find to be somewhat amazing. Um, and we see this in the, in the main principles that are in the book. And as you get into the story, it almost kind of reads like a soap opera in some cases. Uh, but again, the revelation of knowledge and, and wisdom uh, that gets uh, exhibited through the principles in this book, um, touching on a bunch, a myriad of subjects, is just, um, it's amazing. And so you can mine for, for wisdom in this book over and over. Every time I read it, something else hits me. And so without further ado, let's get into this. First, uh, first of all, time frame, this takes place in about 587 BC, um, which is after the Jews have been exiled uh, to Babylon by uh, King Nebuchadnezzar. So it's in roughly within 50 years, the same kind of time frame as Ezra and Nehemiah. And so, um, and so this is taking place under a different king. And so let's, let's get into this thing here. So we see in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, These events took place during the days of Ahasuerus, who ruled 127 provinces from India to Cush. In those days, King Ahasuerus reigned from his royal throne in the fortress at Susa. And so Susa is a city. Inside there's a fortress. And um, in verse 3 it says, He held a feast in the third year of his reign for all his officials and staffs, the army of Persia and Medea, uh, Medea, Medea, uh, the nobles and the officials from uh, the provinces. And so he had a feast, you know, that um, we'll see it lasted half a year for all of his key people, his ranked people. It says in verse four, he dis <laughs> you got to hear this. I love this. He displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness. <laughs> He, he displayed the glorious wealth of his kingdom and the magnificent splendor of his greatness for a total of 180 days. And so for a total of six months, he displayed how awesome he was. <laughs> so, you know, I don't think the king had an ego. I don't know. <laughs> then it says in verse 5, At the end of this time, the king held a week-long banquet in the garden courtyard of the royal palace for all the people from the greatest to the least, who were present in the fortress of Susa. And so for six months, he had a, um, a feast, a party um, for all of his, his, his ranked people, his top officials and everything else. And then after that, he held a week-long uh, week feast for the common folks, for the unranked people. And it's in, then it says in verse 7, drinks were served in an array of gold goblets, uh, each with a different design. Royal wine flowed freely according to the king's bounty. And so people were able to come in and partake of the wine and the king and, and, you know, drink whatever they want. And everybody was feeling good. Again, we're in a festival. So then it says in verse 9, Queen Vashti, who uh, also gave a feast for the women of King Asahorus' palace. And so his wife, the queen, you know, he was having his feast. So she gave a feast and a party, if you will, for the women of the palace. And then it says in verse 10, on the seventh day, when the king was feeling good from the wine, um, he asked, uh, he commanded his seven eunuchs, 
to go bring me the queen. You know, again, there's a feast. King's feeling good. He asks his servants, go bring me the queen. Verse 11. It says he asked to bring Queen Vashti before him with a royal crown. He wanted to show off her beauty to the people uh, and the officials because she was very beautiful. So he apparently had a trophy wife. And so he wanted his eunuchs to go bring her out so I can show her off to all of my uh, subjects. In verse 12, it says, but Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command that was delivered by his eunuchs. The king became furious and his anger burned within him. So the eunuchs went to get her and she was like, no, I ain't having it. Now, why she didn't come, I don't know. Maybe because the king was a little, you know, feeling a little bit too good. Maybe because she felt like she was going to be used, you know, as an object. I don't, I don't know why, but she did not come. And the king became enraged. And in verse 13, it says, the king consulted the wise men who understood the times. Now, so the wise men knew what was going on in the kingdom and we'll understand what the times were as we get into this. It says the king consulted the wise men who understood the times, for it was his normal procedure to confer with experts in law and justice. And so the king was displaying some wisdom here. So before he would make a ruling or whatever, he would consult with the experts to see what the deal was and what he should do. In verse 15, um, the king asked, according to the law, what should be done with Queen Vashti since she refused to obey King Ahasuerus' command that was delivered by the eunuchs? So the king is asking his counselors, what should I do? In verse 16, uh, uh, I always see Mamukin. Yeah, that's got to be Mamukin. Mamukin said, so this is one of his advisors. Mamukin said, in the presence of the king and his officials, Queen Vashti um, has not, let's see, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but all of the officials and the peoples who are uh, in every one of King Ahasuerus's uh, provinces. And so Mamukin is telling him, look, she hasn't just done you wrong. She's done us, the officials, wrong and everybody in the kingdom, in all of the provinces, all of the provinces, all 127 provinces, she's done wrong. In verse 17, it says, for the queen's action will become public knowledge to all the women and cause them to despise their husbands and say, King Ahasuerus ordered Queen Vashti brought before him, but she did not come. And so what he said is she is going to incite the women of the kingdom to turn against their husbands and not obey them. We can't have this. And so that was her offense, you know. And so in verse 18, it says, before this day is over, the noble women of Persia and Mediah, uh, who hear about the queen's act, will say the same thing to all the king's officials, resulting in more contempt and fury. <laughs> so listen, she's going to incite a riot. She's going to incite a revolution amongst our wives. And, and, and we just can't have this. And so in verse 19, it says, if it meets the king's approval, he should personally use a royal decree. Let it be recorded in the laws of Persia and Mediah so that it cannot be revoked. Vashti is not to enter, the king, enter King Ahasuerus' presence, and her royal position is to be given to another woman who is more worthy than she. The decree uh, the king issues will be heard throughout the vast kingdom, so all women will honor their husbands uh, from the greatest to the least. And so that is the reasoning. It says, so that all women will honor their husbands from the greatest to the least. This is why we need to banish Queen Vashti from your presence forever. And so that is her punishment. It says uh, in verse 21, the king and his counselors approved the proposal. 
that every man should be master of his own house and speak in the language of his own people. And so this is in the royal decree, right? And so let's go on to chapter two here. And it says, sometime later, when King Ahasuerus's rage had cooled down, he remembered Vashti, what she had done, and what was decided against her. The king's personal attendant suggested, um, uh, yes, suggested, let's search for, a, uh, let's, let a search be made for a beautiful young virgin for the, uh, for the king. So apparently the king started remembering Vashti and started missing her, you know, and, and he was, I guess, a little, a little solemn, a little down. And so then we see that his, his attendants were saying, well, let's search for a beautiful virgin. That'll cheer him up. And let's replace Vashti with her. And it dropped down to verse 4. It says, uh, then the young woman who pleases the king will become queen instead of Vashti. This suggestion pleased the uh, king, and, uh, and he did accordingly. And so he heard the plan. We're going to send a word throughout the kingdom, you know, search for the most beautiful virgin we can find, and she's to become queen. King is like, okay, cool. Verse 5, in the fortress of Susa, there was a Jewish man named Mordecai, son of Jair, uh, son of Shemai, uh, son of Kish, a Benjamite. He had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the other captives when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon took King uh, Jeconiah of Judah into exile. And so there's a, a generation here uh, of living in the, um, uh, the exiled land in, in Babylon. And so it says in verse 7, Mordecai... Um, was the legal guardian of his cousin, Esther. Because she had no father and mother, the young woman had a beautiful figure and was extremely good-looking. When her father and mother died, Mordecai had adopted her as his own daughter. And so they have a parental relationship. And verse 8, when the king's uh, command and edict became public knowledge, and when many young women were gathered at the fortress of Susa under uh, Haggai's supervision, Esther was taken to the palace into the supervision of Haggai, um, keeper of the women. And so Haggai, yeah, Haggai, no, yeah, Haggai, <laughs> no, that's not right. Haggai, I said it right, uh, keeper of the women. So he was a eunuch, and so he was the supervisor of the women. And so, um, and so then what, what, what happened was um, uh, he would, uh, brought her into the palace and started to prepare her, if you will. And it said um, in verse 10, however, Esther did not reveal her ethnicity or family background because Mordecai had ordered her not to make them known. Now this is gonna become very, very important as we go on. It says in verse 12, during the year before each young woman's turn to go to the king, uh, to go to King Ahasuerus, the harem regulation required her to receive beauty treatments with oil and myrrh for six months and then perfumes and cosmetics for another six months. So for a whole year, for a whole year, a woman who was to go before the king had to go through these beauty treatments. In verse 13, when the young woman would go to the king, she was given whatever she requested to take with her from the harem uh, to the palace. In verse 14, she would go in the evening, and in the morning she would return to a second harem under the supervision of the king's eunuch. And so of the king's eunuch, um, keeper of the concubines. And so he had a, you know, one, uh, Haggai was the keeper of the women. The other one was the keeper of the concubines. Now, and it says here in verse 14, we can't miss this. She would go in the evening and in the morning she would return to a second harem. In other words, she would go in the evening 
do things with the king, if you will, audition with the king, and then she would go somewhere else. Let's not fool ourselves with regard to what was going on. And then it says, she never went to the king again unless he desired her and summoned her by name. And so this was a one-time shot. You got a one-time shot to impress the king with your skills, and then uh, you're going to go to a second uh, um, uh, eunuch, uh, the key, uh, keeper of the concubines, who's going to watch over you, I guess, for the rest of your life. And so um, in verse 15, no, you know, let's move on. Let's drop down to verse 17. It says, uh, so then Esther, um, uh, you know, she prepares and she goes before the king. And then it says in verse 17, the king loved Esper, Esther more than all the other women. She won more favor and approval from him than did any of the other virgins. He placed, her royal, he, he placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen in place of Vashti. The king held a great uh, banquet for all his officials and staff. It was Esther's banquet. He freed the provinces uh, from tax payments and gave gifts worthy of a king's bounty. And so they had a great celebration when they made Esther the queen. And then it says in verse 21, during those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, uh, Big Than, <laughs> when I first read that, it looked like it said Big Thang, but it says Big Than, and uh, Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance, became infuriated uh, with the king and planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. Verse 22, when Mordecai learned of the plot, he reported it to Queen Esther, and she told the king on Mordecai's behalf. When the report was investigated and verified, both men were hanged in the gallows. This event, it was recorded in the historical record of the king's presence. Now, this is important because essentially what happens here is Mordecai saved the king's life. And the king is not going to forget this. And so we'll see this as we go on. And the word was delivered again through uh, Queen Esther uh, what the plot was going to be. Let's go on to chapter 3. And it says in verse 1, after all this took place, King Ahasuerus uh, honored Haman, Haman, son of Hamanitha, uh, the Agagite. He promoted him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. And so Haman, not Haman, it should be Haman, Haman was the second in command of, um, of Babylon. And then in uh, verse 2, it says, the entire royal staff uh, at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. And so Mordecai wasn't doing it. This was a part of the law of the land. You had to give Haman respect, but Mordecai wouldn't bow down before him. So the people at were asking Mordecai, why don't you bow down before the king? And, you know, he, he just didn't do it. And then in verse 4, it says, uh, when they, the people that were questioning Mordecai about his actions, when they had warned him day after day, and he still would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see if Mordecai's actions would be tolerated since he was told, uh, uh, since he had told them he was a Jew. So Mordecai answered them and told him, and says, well, I'm a Jew. I can't bow before my, I bow before my God, but I don't bow before men. That's essentially what Mordecai must have told these people. And they told this to Haman. And so then in verse 5, when Haman saw that Mor Mordecai was not bowing down or paying him homage, he was filled with rage. And when he learned of Mordecai's ethnic identity, it seemed repugnant to Haman to do away with Mordecai alone. In other words, it wasn't good enough 
that Mordecai wasn't paying homage to me, therefore I'm going to get rid of Mordecai. I'm going to get rid of him and all his people because in my understanding, he's not bowing down before me and paying me homage because I'm a Jew. Therefore, I got to get rid of all the Jews so that this disrespect of my honor will not continue. And so then he says he planned to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout Ahasuerus' kingdom. So this was his plan. And so then... Um, and then it says, uh, then Haman, formed, uh, Haman informed King Ahasuerus, there is one ethnic group scattered throughout the peoples in every province of your kingdom, keeping themselves separate. Their laws are different from everyone else's, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If the king approves, let an order be drawn up authorizing their destruction. And then, uh, and then Haman says, I'll pay 375 tons of silver for this to take place. In other words, I'll pay people to do this. And so in verse 10, the king removed his signet ring. So the king would write a letter. He was sealing in wax. And the signet ring was used to, 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 as a seal of the king, um, giving people notice that this is a royal decree. So the king removed his signet ring from his uh, finger and gave it to Haman, um, the enemy of the Jewish people. Then the king told Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with as you see fit. So, Haman, I am releasing you to destroy them any way you see fit. You can destroy them however you see fit. That's essentially what the king was telling Haman. And then in verse 13, it says, Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day. <laughs> So the, the decree, the decree uh, goes forth, destroy them all, do it in one day, get rid of them throughout all of the 127 provinces of the kingdom. And then in chapter 4, in verse 1, it says, When Mordecai learned all that had occurred, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went into the middle of the city, and cried loudly and bitterly. Verse 3, there was a great mourning among the Jewish people in every province where the king's command and edict came. They fasted, wept, and lamented, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Verse 4, Esther's female servants and her eunuchs came and reported the news to her, and the queen was overcome with fear. She sent clothes for Mordecai to wear so that he would take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. So Mordecai was mourning, and he wasn't going to accept any comfort. Uh, Esther summoned um, Hathak, or Hathak um, one of the king's eunuchs, who attended her and dispatched him to Mordecai to learn what he was doing and why. Then in verse 8, it says, um, uh, Mordecai also gave him a copy. Uh, so Mordecai gave uh, the eunuch a copy of the decree uh, issued in Susa, ordering their destruction uh, so that the eunuch might show it to Esther, explain to her, and command her to approach the king, implore his favor, and plead with him personally for her people. The eunuch came and repeated Mordecai's response to Esther. And so Mordecai sends her a message through the eunuch that says, look, you got to go before the king. You got to plead on our behalf to rescind this. And so then uh, in verse 10, it says, Esther spoke to the uh, eunuch and commanded him to tell Mordecai, all the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned. 
the death penalty unless the king extends the royal scepter, the gold scepter, allowing that person to live. In other words, you can't just approach the king, even his wife, even the queen, unless he summons you. And if you do, unless he extends the gold scepter, saying that essentially that he's going to accept your visit, then you're to be executed. And she says, I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. Uh, Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. So she's essentially saying, I can't just go, go before him. I might die. But Mordecai's response is interesting. In verse 13, he, he told a messenger to reply to Esther, don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. He's, he's saying, don't think because you're privileged, you're going to get away from this. And so he's assuming that she's trying to escape. She's trying to get out of what he's requesting her to do, which she was. But he's saying, don't think that you're not going to pay a price just because you're in that palace. Verse 14, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. But you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Huh. So you're saying, uh, maybe you've been placed in this position of leadership so that God can use you for such a time as this. I call it the burden of leadership. A lot of people see leadership as a privileged activity, but in many cases it's a burden because what's called on for the leader to do in many cases would never be called on for other people to do. And so let's go on to the verse 15. Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and assemble all. Excuse me. Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa, uh, and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. If I perish, I perish. In other versions, versions it says, "If I die, I die." And so I'm going to go, and I'm going to do what's required of me what's required of this position I'm in. I'm a Jew. King doesn't know I'm a Jew. Nobody knows I'm a Jew, so they don't know that this decree is going to affect me. So I'm going to go before the king, even though I haven't been summoned, and if I die, I die. In verse 17, so Mordecai went and did everything Esther had commanded him to do. So they, they fasted and prayed for three days before Esther was going to approach the king. And so tomorrow we're going to get into Esther's approach of the king and see what happens. This is incredible. There's just so much revelation that's just bouncing off my head right now. Anyway, uh, with that, we will see you tomorrow. Everybody have a blessed day, and bye-bye now.